0: Good afternoon
1: and welcome. Well, here in Toronto and Peel region, we will mark a full two months in lockdown later this week. Is it working? Is it at least starting to work? A question that is even more important in light of delayed and cancelled vaccine shipments that we've just been finding out about. Well, Dr. Ryan Imgrund is a biostatistician who's been providing daily COVID-19 analysis and he's developed some really interesting metrics that offer insight into the main question how are we doing? Let me give you the numbers again. If you have a question or a comment, 416 360 toll free one 866 740 Dr. Ingrund, welcome to Fight Back. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. Before we get into some of the specifics in general, what would you say? How are we doing?
2: We're actually doing pretty good here in uh, Ontario right now. Um, We have seen um, a reproductive rate under one, um, and that's the number of secondary infections that are caused by one primary infection. We've seen that under one for about 10 days now, Um, and that's what you want to see if you want to see case counts go down. So it's more than just an actual plateau. I think we're actually starting to see cases go down.
1: Yeah, that was the first thing I noticed. uh, The reproductive rate uh, in very layperson's terms is... If, if how many other people does somebody who's infected uh, spread the virus to?
2: Absolutely right. Yeah. So it's actually really good um, looking at that in terms of more whole numbers. So in, in, instead of something like 0.9, you could look at that at um, like 10 people who are infected are going to pass that on to nine other people. Now, we also know, too, that sometimes, um, you know, Of those like 10 people, there may only be two of them who pass them on to other people, but they actually pass them on to many other people. So on average, what we're finding right now is about 10 people are going to be passing on cases to nine people, and that happens about every four days. So at this rate of 0.9, what it roughly means is that the number of daily cases will reduce by about 50% in the span of the next month.
1: Okay, well, that's that's good news. It's, it's sometimes hard to tell from the numbers. I mean, yesterday, we were all cheering when we saw a number of cases in Ontario below 2,000, and then it's like, oh, but by the way, there was a glitch in the numbers, and it was underreported. Uh, so uh, the number per 100,000 that I've seen is 141 per 100,000 here in Ontario. How does that compare to other provinces and other countries?
2: Yeah, so actually... um. Here in uh, Ontario, we were up to about 168, so that's uh, come down quite significantly. Now, worldwide, um, we're seeing, you know, some of the more troubling countries right now um, seeing values between 400 to 600 weekly cases per 100,000. We're seeing some of the really, really strongly performing areas um, seeing between zero to one weekly case per 100,000 people. So it's really all over the map. Now, across... uh, like Canada right now, uh, Ontario does have one of the highest weekly case like, counts per 100,000 people, mainly driven by like, urban area growth. So when you look at the uh, like greater Toronto area, that's where most of the cases seem like, you know, to actually be in. Uh, but we are seeing that the other places, uh, like Alberta and uh, like Quebec, who had very, very high case counts, they had a more thorough lockdown than us, and they have actually really, really driven cases down.
1: Hmm. When you look at, say, other countries that have really low rates, uh, are there any common themes there?
2: Yeah, there are. Well, so I think one thing that we see is um, there has been a the goal of the COVID zero. So it's not just saying, look, let's not overwhelm the hospitals. It's let's not have any COVID cases. And it's a lot more challenging to actually do that. Um, you've, you've got to do a lot more testing. Um You've got to make sure that your you know, republic is on the uh, board with that, too. So I think that's a really, really strong approach, COVID-0. Um, and we look at, like, Australia. Um, they're one successful country that has actually targeted COVID-0. They wanted zero cases. Um, they have been able to get it down in um, some regions next to zero. Um, the other thing which we see, too, is there's um, a lot of, like, Asian countries. Um, but there, I think what's being done there is, What I would call aggressive contact tracing where they know what other phones your phone has been around. So if you test positive for COVID-19, they're going to simply contact every other person. So there may, you know, there may be a few privacy issues with that, but I think one thing that we could do here in Ontario and Canada too would be to target zero cases.
1: Well, the other thing, the kinds of measures we've seen in those places, well, in Quebec, there's a curfew that, that uh, people are opposed to. And you need, in some places, you need a permit uh, to be out. You can't be out for more than an hour at a time. I, You know, I don't, I don't know that our population would accept measures like that.
2: Exactly. And I think that's one of the struggles for sure. I mean, even, um, you know, when we, we spoke about, Uh, Like asking people to limit regional travel, there were some issues with that. But if you look to um, like Australia, let's say, um, one thing which uh, they had done when they had their aggressive lockdown, it was very, very targeted. It was actually targeted by like postal code. Um, And if you lived in certain like postal codes, you had different restrictions than other people in other postal codes. Some of them would be you're not able to travel more than five kilometers from your home um, for any reason. Um, So, there's, you know, things like that that I think are a little bit more palatable to the average uh, like Canadian that I think we would be able to implement if we did it a lot more targeted um, and not even regional, but it was a lot more local, some of these restrictions.
1: Okay, I'd like to drill down on some of the age factors. So uh, we had a horrible record in the first wave of the pandemic, 80% of the deaths were in nursing homes. And uh, that was the worst in the Western world. All the politicians promised an iron ring and all of that. And and we're maybe doing a little better, but not really that much better.
2: No, we're really not. And I think that's one of the things too, which we have spotted is that We didn't learn as much from the first wave as I was hoping we actually would learn from the first wave. We had promised in Iron Ring back in April. That never happened in the first wave, and it certainly hasn't happened right now. With all that being said, too, even uh, the the vaccine rollout, um, we've got 78,000 long-term care facility residents here in Ontario. We've administered above 200,000 vaccinations, and we still haven't even vaccinated half of all long-term care facility residents. In Ontario. So, of those 200,000 administered doses, roughly less than 40,000 have gone to long term care facility residents, and those are the ones we need to have vaccinated if the overall goal is to reduce COVID-19 mortality.
1: Right. Well, there's, I want to get to the whole issue of vaccines and and how much of the vaccines have been administered in a minute, but, but just keeping up with the age. So uh, the last time I looked, the percentage of deaths in long-term care was 60 or so. I don't know if that changed this week.
2: It's better. It's definitely lower. Um, You know, so I think, you know, really the, next thing that we should be targeting, I guess, like age-wise, should be to reduce hospitalizations. And I think the one thing we need to keep in mind, too, is that if the overall goal um, is not just to reduce mortalities, but also to make sure that we have sufficient healthcare capacity, we need to be targeting uh, hospitalizations. And what we find is that it's not typically the 80-plus population that ends up hospitalized. A lot of long-term care facility residents, um, they'll actually die in their long-term care They won't send Um, them
1: to the hospital. It's it's uh, shocking.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know what? If you um, saw some of the policies of some of these long term care facilities, you'd understand why. Some are very very specific that if you leave this home for any reason, even if it is to seek like care for COVID nineteen, you're only allowed to to return back if you're able to isolate on your own in a hospital that you pay for with a personal support worker that you hire for 14 days. There's not many long-term care facility residents that would be able to successfully self-isolate in order to go back to their long-term care facility if they indeed recover from COVID-19. So there's a lot of protocols, there's a lot of policies that make it very challenging for these residents to leave and actually seek hospital care.
1: Um, another question about the age. So you have uh, a graph which shows the weekly change in case count uh, by age, and it's actually down for every age except for people in their 80s and 90s.
2: Yeah, and that's where the real struggle is because that's the age group which, once again, we're going to see mortalities in. And that's why we are continuing right now to see mortalities increase. And it's unfortunate because mortalities take quite some time to occur from when symptom onset occurs. So I think we're gonna continue to see um, mortalities increase, maybe level off, but we're not gonna see them actually drop uh, until probably about another two or three weeks. So they're going to lag significantly behind any um, positive case news, which we see here in Ontario.
1: Well, and you mentioned about the the vaccine distribution. We got some very bad news yesterday about Pfizer cancelling shipments. And uh, in the meantime, you also have a metric that says that here in Ontario, 28% of the vaccines that we do have have not been administered.
2: They have not. And that's, um, you know... And that's a shame because if you look at some place like Alberta, um, there have, you know, they have had situations where it's, where it's been between zero to 2% of their vaccines have been stored within freezers. They had a similar start to Ontario. Um, they, you know, we had at one point about 80% of our vaccines in the, the freezers. Alberta did as well, but they've had a much more successful rollout ensuring that when these vaccinations touch the ground, it's been at some points two or three days before every vaccination that they had received was in somebody's arms. Here in Ontario, we haven't received vaccines for like quite some time, and yet we still haven't even administered them all. So it becomes really tough to like argue that you want more vaccines when you have 30% of your like, vaccination supply still sitting inside of freezers.
1: Uh, yeah, and, and back to this age group thing. So uh, we've had a lot of complaints from people who are older in the community Healthy, still healthy, but isolated because they feel that they've been forgotten. And even in the original plan of the government, uh, someone in the community who's over 80 wasn't going to get a shot until, you know, March, April. Uh, And
2: that's, yeah, and that's a big, big mistake that we did here here in Ontario. I'm not sure why, because we've got federal guidelines. Um, and those federal guidelines very, very clearly state that it's frontline health care workers, it's vulnerable populations, it's long-term care facility residents, and it's 80-plus in the first phase. In fact, the federal guidelines even have 80-plus-year-olds, regardless of where they actually live, in the first phase ahead of essential workers. Yet here in Ontario, we have moved 80-plus-year-olds into phase number two, and we have moved up some healthcare workers that are not frontline into phase 1 so we've really like done a like the service to our 80 plus population which we should not have done because it goes strictly against federal guidelines
1: yeah uh, that is really unfortunate i mean we've heard uh, explanations i i or excuses saying, well, they ended up with extra doses that were going to go bad, so they let healthcare workers who were not in line get in line. Is, is that a valid excuse? No, it's not, because
2: I, um, some healthcare workers um, who were non-frontline, not, who were virtual researchers with the University Health Network, um, they were told a vaccination clinics days in advance. They were asked to schedule in a vaccination. I think the only time it's okay for someone to uh, jump the queue is if you're administering at a hospital and you have an extra dose because somebody doesn't show up, then, you know, for sure, you can offer it to one of your frontline healthcare workers. Absolutely. Nobody would have an issue with that, but it's the you know, fact that we're extending advanced invitations to non frontline people. Some people on, you know, uh, maternity leave, those who work virtually, those who are in a hospital but are not actually frontline and we're extending them invitations. We should be extending those invitations to the 80 plus population without a doubt.
1: Okay. Uh, Dr. Ingrand, I know you have to go. What would you like to leave us with?
2: Yeah, I think what's important to note is that we are seeing the case numbers in Ontario drop. We are going to hear in these next few days that um, we still have healthcare worries, that we're still seeing mortalities, that we're still seeing hospitalizations, but we need to really know that those are going to lag, those are going to improve eventually. We need to keep on doing what we are doing now because it's having a positive effect. We are definitely seeing numbers drop here in Ontario.
1: Okay, Dr. Ryan Imgren, thanks so much for that. Fascinating.
2: See you later. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. Okay, so there may be a glimmer of hope in some of the statistical analysis we've just been hearing about, but the situation on the ground is dire. We're warned that our hospitals are on the verge of being overwhelmed. Patients are already being transferred uh, to facilities that are far from their homes. And yesterday on this show, we discussed the triage protocol sent out last week to instruct doctors how to decide which patients will get treatment if there is not enough to go around so and this as i just mentioned as we learned about delays and cancellations of vaccines so let me give you the numbers again if you have comments 416-360-0740 toll free 1-866-740-4740 And let's bring in Dr. Gerald Evans, chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Kingston General Hospital, and Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Thank you and welcome.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Libby.
1: Okay, let's start with Dr. Evans. Uh, You've been receiving patients from far away, even though uh, things in Kingston are apparently not that bad.
4: That's right. Uh, We are taking patients here and that's helped to trying to help alleviate the uh, situation in Toronto to uh, give a chance for um, staff there to uh, deal with those uh, numbers, which continue to rise as as, uh, Ryan Imgren was uh, mentioning in the first interview.
1: And do you feel that uh, with all of that, you're uh, in danger of, of being too full?
4: Uh, at the moment we're in, we're in good shape and, and, you know, we sort of perceive it as part of our responsibility to, uh, participate in the health system to help alleviate it. We would, uh, expect that if we were in the same boat uh, that the hospitals in Toronto are in that, that they would be doing the same thing uh, for us if we were overcrowded. So uh, we are uh, dealing with it. We're doing, I think, a pretty good job and uh, at the same time trying to maintain um, as much activity as we can, uh, given the fact that uh, right here in southeastern Ontario, particularly around Kingston, uh, we've been very um, uh, fortunate in having a fairly low community prevalence.
1: Okay, let's bring in Dr. Sly. Hi, Dr. Sly.
3: Hello, Libby. Uh,
1: so, in terms of the situation in uh, Toronto or in the hotspots, um, do you feel that we are at a uh, very difficult point?
3: We're at a difficult point. Uh, I'm, I'm cautiously, very cautiously optimistic, but it's certainly too soon to uh, open the champagne and say that we're over the, over the hump, over the bridge here at all. We've got, everything's relying on data, and of course, as Ryan's team it gives us a, it's a guide map, a, a route map ahead, but remember that there's three problems with the data. One is that, that we, daily figures are really not reliable at all. You need at least a seven-day average before you can begin to get an idea of where the trend, and that that's, that is downturning a little bit, That looking hopeful. Secondly, of course, you only have a fraction of the real numbers, the real infections that are taking place. At least half of the of the virus-positive people show no symptoms at all. We've known that since the beginning, so we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, really. And third, of course, all the data we get, whether it's infections or hospitalizations or, or deaths, they're all delayed Maybe between two and five weeks, the infection for those things took place. And so we're always behind the 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 real facts of what's, what's happening.
1: Dr. Evans, what do you think the impact of the delayed shipments of vaccines will be in general?
4: Well, I think pretty substantial at the moment because uh you know all of the planning has gone around the issues of recognizing that there would be you know a limited but still identifiable shipment of vaccine and and the fact that we've gone from um, you know an announcement that there would be a decrease to the fact that there is going to be none in the last week of january uh, for me does not bode well uh, I think you know uh, uh Ryan really emphasized the issue we have got to get vaccine into. Uh, individuals who are at high risk for um, uh, death for mortality, and that includes not just long-term care um, and residents, but those out in the community, those over uh, over age. I would say actually seventy, if you look at the sort of um, case fatality rates that have been reported. So that that uh, reduction in supply is going to be uh, a substantial problem. And I, I guess I'll just add very quickly that healthcare personnel. Across the province, I've also been looking for the idea that this is another tool in our toolbox to um, protect healthcare workers uh, in hospital settings as they care for people who have COVID-19. Uh, we have very good measures with IPAC, but, but this has been a real part of it. And that shortage, of course, um, should be directed at not, not necessarily vaccinating uh, those individuals as first line. I still believe very strongly that it should be those are at most risk for uh, for mortality and those that are working in that sector, which is principally long-term care and the elderly in the community. Uh,
1: you know, I I don't know what happened because the first thing I heard about allocation, both from bioethicists and from Teresa Tam, I thought, wow, they're just going to make it simple. It's going by age and obviously long-term care. And suddenly that got all screwed up. And and I was frankly shocked when I heard people over 80 are going to wait until the second tranche. It doesn't make sense to me because you'd think that, hey, you have people who are healthy. Don't you want to keep them healthy? Dr. Sly?
3: Yeah, I think these are excellent points you're bringing out, Libby. Uh, we can sort of cut cut the cake into two forms. We can say The 80-year-old who's in a long-term care home has a different risk profile than an 80-year-old who's in their basement by themselves, locked down, and somebody brings some food every day or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm... paraphrasing here a little bit. So there is a difference in the risk uh, presented to these two people. But certainly we need to stand back and say, where do we save the majority of lives? Which action do we take to do this? And we we should have been making these plans uh, in July and August, not waiting until the vaccines are rolled out and still hesitating. Unfortunately, Ontario, going back to SARS-1, in 2003 as a history of hesitation and umming and ahring and fumbling before we make a solid decision. That's the problem.
1: And I mean, in terms of long-term care, I don't even want to get into the staffing, but our neighbors in Quebec ponied up some money to beef up staffing. We didn't, you know, uh, and the result is there. I'm going to take a call from Fred in Sundridge. Hi, Fred. How are you doing? Fine. How are you?
5: Oh, well, the usual answer. I'm doing good. Go ahead. Well, what I'm seeing is uh, the recommendations, the uh, the laws, uh, whatever you want to call them, put forth by the government on this uh, COVID are being basically ignored. Now, I live in a small town up north. It's a tourist town, uh, very uh, very tourist oriented. But what I'm seeing, uh, what I just saw. And I'm seeing the same thing every day. I go by a uh, community uh, gathering point uh, courthouse in town here. has a big parking lot. And today there was at least 15 Skidoo trailers in there with uh, different vehicles on the front of them. One of them, with the advertising on the side of it, very prominent, said Lampton Mills, Ontario. Now, what are these people doing commuting up here? from Toronto, Toronto area, Lampton Mills, whatever, and just completely ignoring any suggestions, any regulations put forth by the government. How many of them are bringing this COVID with them?
1: I, I I honestly don't know what's happening in your area. But yes, it's very difficult because some people are obeying and, and on side with the lockdown. And we're just hearing that, hey, yes, hard to see yet, but it is helping a bit and others aren't. Fred, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. And, uh, people again, 416 toll free one 866 740 And I'm talking to Gerald Evans in Kingston, uh, which is doing relatively pretty well and Dr. Timothy Sly. And we're talking about, uh, all those statistics we were hearing about from Dr. Imgrund, plus, uh, the, the, the problem of suddenly we were hearing that, that shipments of vaccine are delayed. And we have been hearing how some of that crucial supply has been diverted. Um, and, uh, Dr. Evans, um, a- again, um, you know, what will the impact of that be long term? And the, I don't think that, Canada even got a a lot of early supply. I think that was the problem with their very late, our very late procurement.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the issues is that uh, we really need the vaccine now. It would be a very effective tool in reducing numbers quickly. I think we've started to see some of the numbers in Israel, which had a very effective campaign. They made it very simple. I've actually uh, chatted with the group that were involved in the uh, rollout in Israel uh, uh, as a, at a science table uh, meeting that we had last week. Um, That has had an impact and it reduces things. So with a delay in getting those shipments in here, with not having them early, we are going to have to maintain a large number of the current uh, public health measures, which we know are working. Uh, uh, Dr. Imgram presented that data uh, and showed that there is a decided downturn now in numbers and transmission events going on. So what that means is we're going to have to maintain this for an appreciably longer period as we wait to get the vaccine that's going to really help us continue to boost that response uh, and get those numbers down. And then, as already mentioned by Dr. Sly and others, this downstream effect of seeing uh, hospital utilization and, of course, mortality is seen weeks later, uh, even when you see a downturn. And that's just simply been the way it has been since uh, the pandemic started.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, that that kind of makes sense. And uh, we're just beginning the spike in numbers, I'm assuming, is from Christmas
4: very much so. I mean, I think the, the numbers we're seeing, certainly people in hospital, is a reflection of that increased activity we saw uh, within the sort of one to two weeks after the holiday period, uh, and then that is followed again by an increase that you tend to see for about two or three weeks afterwards. It's a two-phase illness, and many people become more gravely ill and require hospitalization during the second week of their illness, not so much during the first week after the onset of symptoms. Okay.
1: Okay. Um... I'm going to take a call from Melanie in High Park and I, uh, I, I don't really understand your question. You're asking about a dead virus being transmitted. Yes. Uh, um. dead viruses are not transmitted. Wondering uh, how can I? Thank you for taking the call. It's wonderful when you have
5: these physicians and people who explain things to us. It's, it's like we're sitting here in the dark, you know. But with your show, we're being enlightened. So, how can something called a dead virus? kill a person. What do do scientists, what do you mean by dead virus? And I heard also from someone who knows science a little bit more than I do, that there's something genetically connected if uh, you have the still part of the Neanderthal gene from Europe, where Uh. it's in certain areas where the Neanderthal weren't uh, in that area, that uh, they I'm gonna, may not I'm have g- the Melanie. I'm going to stop
1: that part of a question because that that sounds like a, a lot of misinformation and nonsense. I am going to ask them uh, to respond to you on the dead virus. That's what they put in vaccines. Uh, so uh, why don't you just listen to their answer, okay? Uh, Doctor Sly, do you want to explain that?
3: Oh, no, I'm just the epidemiologist, Libby. I'm going to let uh, Dr. Evans answer this one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Dr. Delight. Yeah, so there are a number
4: of different platforms we're using for vaccine um, development. One of them, the older one of the oldest platforms is to take the virus, inactivate it is what we call it, and then inject it into people. And there are a number of, of different companies that have developed inactivated virus vaccines. Uh, right now the ones that we're currently looking at do not involve that kind of technology. The mRNA vaccine is simply a messenger RNA template which codes for a protein um, that's injected into people. You make the protein in your muscle cells. It's not the virus, just a piece of the virus, um, and that creates an antibody response. The other two candidates that are down the pipeline are using what are called virus vectors, are using a non-replicating adenovirus in which the DNA code for that same protein is inserted. That creates the same process of making the protein and then making antibodies. Inactivated viruses are exactly that. They're dead. Uh, I mean, they've got to go more than a process of being dead. Uh, And and some of those are looking very good in the early trials that we have um, in producing an antibody response. Uh, But it isn't uh, sort of the main technologies that we're looking at uh, in this early phase of vaccine development. We have lots of better technologies nowadays. Uh, There's also recombinant protein vaccines that are coming along quite nicely. Um, So, right, dead viruses don't cause the infection and none of the vaccines currently are either using uh, inactivated virus that we're going to be seeing in the near future so not a worry.
1: Okay, let's take one from Marie in Stouffville. Hello, Marie. Oh, hello. You're on the air, go ahead. Oh, good. Um, I have a
5: question for the doctors. My husband is a quadriplegic. He's home and has nurses visiting every day. When will he be able to get the shot, or or his caregivers?
1: Um, I think his caregivers might be eligible. Uh, do do either of you know the answer to that?
4: Well, the face of providing vaccine to people who are at home who may have conditions which may pose a risk. And certainly, people who are providing home health care are indicated in the in the second phase as an important group uh, to uh, to immunize um, as the vaccine supply improves and we can get that out there. So they would be well ahead of the, the general public and in the same group that we have other type of essential workers which we uh, need to keep in the in the community. But right now, age is the. Predominant factor that's being used at in priorizing people for vaccine. And then the next group is those that may be at, um, may have medical conditions, which could produce uh, major problems should they develop COVID.
1: Yeah. Are, are people who work in home care, are they in the first group?
4: if they're going into long-term cares, they would be, and some home care providers do go into long-term care, but those that provide long uh, home care outside of the long-term care setting, they are considered a sort of the priority group after the long-term care group, uh, but, they're, but they're very important to immunize for the, all the reasons that you would imagine. They're going into homes, providing care to people yeah. who suffer from a number of medical conditions.
1: So wait, does that mean also for them March-April?
4: Uh, you, yeah, you keep throwing out months. <laughs> oh, yeah, if, the yeah, well. dr- if the supply dramatically increases, I would think that's a group that you might be seeing immunizations getting into them uh, by next month, by February, into the end part of February. So all of it is a supply issue. The number one thing right now is we just don't have supply coming in. Uh, once that is established and, uh, you know, all the planning, that our group here and others have done lots of planning to try and get that out as, as rapidly and efficiently and quickly as possible.
1: Okay, um, it's uh, time to uh, wrap things up more or less. So, Dr. Sly, what would you like to leave us with on this?
3: Oh, only that uh, to pick up on uh, Dr. Evans' comment here, that getting out of this vaccine is going to be uh, a problem. I don't think many people have sort of sat down and think about. Back with envelope stuff, we've got uh, about 15 million people in Ontario. We'd need to vaccinate about 10 million to be sure of a herd immunity. That means about 20 million doses And if we're aiming for next October, that's about 2 million doses uh, uh, a month, which is about 68,000 doses a a day, every day of of the week. Uh, That's the kind of pressure. And, of course, if we see a delay of two or three weeks of any vaccines arriving at all, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult. I think we're going to be vaccinating way into 2022.
1: Wow. Uh, I, I hope you're wrong, Dr. Sly. Oh, so <laughs> my. Dr. Evans, what would you like to leave us with?
4: Oh, well, really, I, I just reiterate a lot of the numbers that Dr. Sly just gave you. I mean, this, this is going to be an unprecedented vaccine campaign that we really need to get on top of quickly. The, the numbers are, are seemingly quite staggering. But, uh, you know, I guess the optimistic message I'll leave is that we have got contracts with lots of vaccines. I'm expecting within the next month or so that we'll have approval of at least two more vaccines. So supply, once that becomes a non-issue, it's a matter of exactly what Dr. Sly mentioned, the mechanics of rolling that out and getting it out to all these people outside of healthcare and outside of the long-term care setting. That's, that's going to be the next big challenge.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Gerald Evans and Dr. Timothy Sly. I appreciate your
0: time. Pleasure, Olivia. You. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.